0: We're going to start out with number 368, Rejoice, the Lord is King. All four verses, 368. few pages 378 i know not why god's wondrous grace we'll do all four verses as well 378 What a friend we have in Jesus, 436. 1, 2, and 3, 436. And for our last song, very familiar one, number 470 Abide with Me. We have time for all verses, all one through five.
1: The psalmist declares for us, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Truly it is a good thing to worship the Lord. That we might delight to do so. Let us join our hearts together in a moment of silent prayer. Father, hear our prayer and enable us to worship you with wholehearted joy unto your glory and honor, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing praise together to him from number 112 in our Psalter hymnal. Number 112, we'll sing all the stanzas. We join with the saints throughout the world in confessing together the truth of God that he has revealed to us using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints Our scripture reading, or our um, psalm reading this evening, is Psalm 119, beginning in verse 81, continuing through verse 96. These two stanzas are quite interesting. The first one, um, the psalmist calls out in the midst of persecution. He's eagerly awaiting the salvation of God. It seems as though he doesn't see it coming. And yet, he continues to keep God's commandments persistently. Trusting that God hears. Trusting that God's going to provide. Even though he doesn't see it. Giving us a, a foreshadowing. Of how Christ, surrounded by the enemies of God. Surrounded by those who hated him because they hated his father. Would continue living the perfect life. Showing forth the image of our Heavenly Father. Trusting that ultimately He would triumph. And then the second stanza, starting in verse 89, emphasizes that the word of God is faithful and unchanging, just like God Himself. Men are faithless. Their word is imperfect and untrustworthy. But God and His commandments can always be relied upon. And that's why we can always, children, why we can always turn here to this truth and to the God who gave it to us. Knowing that even if everyone else lets us down, He won't. You see how those two dovetail together. Sometimes we don't understand what God's doing or why He's doing it or, or how He's answering our prayers. But we can be confident that just as this word never changes, so God never changes. And he will be faithful to us. He will provide, ultimately, what is good for us. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yes, I have, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me. Where I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Amen. Let us sing the first of those two stanzas. We can find it in 246 from our Blue Psalter hymnal. We'll sing all the stanzas of 246. As we come before the Lord in prayer, um, just to point out in our announcement bulletin, our missions uh, prayer request is for Pastor Megali, a home missionary in St. Catharines, Ontario. Um, He reaches out to a lot of folks from the Middle East and India, uh, particularly, um, although not exclusively, Muslim. And they're, boy that's a tough mission field. Not just because of the cultural differences, but because there's a high cost. And they recognize that high cost of turning to Christ. They're uh, cutting themselves off from the culture that nurtured them. And from the family that they love. Because they know that their family will reject them if they turn to Christ. That makes it hard, but at the same time, it makes it clear that you choose all or nothing. You don't turn to Christ part way. And so when they do turn to Christ, they tend to turn rather wholeheartedly, which we could learn from. So let's pray. Oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, we live in a world, as you well know, that is filled with those Who despise you. And who despise those who serve you. And who long to turn your people aside from the way of life. But you have called us to be wholeheartedly devoted unto you. I pray that you would enable us. To recognize the importance of doing just that. Turning aside. From the ways of the flesh. And the ways of the unbelieving world. Holding firmly to your truth. Which is unchanging and good. Trusting in you to deliver us. To provide for us. To guide us. To even form our very identity. So that all that we do. Might be done unto your honor and glory. Lord you know how hard that is for us. How entangled we have become in the ways of the flesh but help us day by day to see the beauty and the glory of our God and to long to reflect your holiness to a watching world that others seeing us might get a glimpse of your character and might be led to ask the reason for the hope within us might be led to see that we've been given a treasure that is greater than this world can offer. Lord, you know that we feel insufficient for this task. We feel weak and unprepared to testify to who your son is and what he has done and how he is uh, how he's working in the midst of your people and how soon he will return and make all things new. Lord, teach us to trust in you, to equip us, to provide us, to guide us, and make it our delight to tell others about you. Lord, we thank you for the work of Brother Magali in Ontario, for his passion for those from the Middle East and India who have lived their lives in darkness and who know the misery of embracing the darkness, but who also know the the great cost that would come with confessing Christ. Lord, continue to equip him and use him for the task. Continue to draw to that ministry those whom you have been preparing to hear. Lord, we pray that you would bless those who hear, both in person and via the television, that they might see the immense value of turning to Christ and how much more faithful and true and unchanging He and His gospel are than the dark ways of this world. We pray that You would continue to provide for this ministry and to use it with great power. And Lord, we pray that You would continue to raise up those who would go forth proclaiming the truth and calling in from the darkness and unto the light, those whom you set apart for yourself. Lord, we look through our own land and we see darkness advancing. We see those rising up proudly who embrace lifestyles and sins that you have called an abomination, worshiping the world and its ways rather than the one who made it all. And Lord, we grieve. We grieve to see the ugliness it produces in them. We grieve to see the emptiness for which they're living. Lord, we pray that you would cause the church to no longer be silent. Not fighting fire with fire. Not meeting them with their own methods. But reaching out in love to build relationships. Reaching out with the truth to call them to repentance and life. And demonstrating the joy and the peace and the forgiveness and the love that your gospel and your spirit alone can provide. Lord, you know that we're weak. We would far rather just keep to ourselves and keep silent and avoid the the hassle and the ruckus. But you have given us a treasure that's meant to be shared. And so among us here at Grace and among your people throughout this land We pray that you would give us an insatiable thirst for telling others about the truth and calling them to life. And Lord, we pray that you would bless your church throughout the world. There are so many places where your people worship under the fear of persecution. Indeed, under the assurance that the evil one is hunting them and seeking to silence their voice. We pray that you would grant them courage and passion and confidence knowing that the one who is in them is greater than the one who is in the world knowing that no one can touch us apart from your purpose and knowing Lord that the absolute worst they can do to us is as nothing in comparison with the glory that awaits us. Father we pray that you would Empower and strengthen and build your church in those persecuted lands. And also, Lord, and also in those places where there is so much suffering and death and loss. We think of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine in the midst of the war. We think of those who are in Syria and Turkey in the aftermath of terrible um, earthquakes We think of those in our southern states that have been decimated by tornadoes and floods. Father, we know that your people in these places have lost much, just as those around them who don't believe. But cause them to respond differently. Cause them to show a confidence in you and a joy that transcends their circumstances so that they might be able to use their circumstances as a means of proclaiming the gospel and pointing those who've lost so much in this world to a greater world that soon is to come and a treasure that cannot be lost through faith in Christ. Father, we pray that you would raise up your church to proclaim the life-giving truth of your gospel. And Lord, we thank you that we can turn to you not only for salvation, but for all the lesser things of this life as well. Lord, you know the struggles and the strife that your people have. We pray that you would meet the needs of each one. We pray for, in particular, our shut-in members who cannot normally gather with your people We pray that you would comfort and strengthen and bless them as only you are able. Likewise, we ask your blessing on our distant members. For Peter in the army, for Greta in Ohio, for Nathan and Calvin in college in Austin, out in Wisconsin, Joanna in uh, South Dakota, and others who are distant from us. Lord, we ask that you would bless and watch over them that you would put people in their lives, in their place, who would build them up in Christ. We pray too, Father, for those who are local but who are not here, those who are sick, those struggling with the weakness brought about by illness and disease. We pray that you would comfort and strengthen them and restore them quickly to us. Grant that they might remember that they are not alone but that you are with them and that they are part of a body. And those who could be here but have chosen not to, Lord, we pray that you would work in their hearts and that you would give them no rest until they find their rest in Christ. And that you would use us to encourage and draw them back to yourself. And Lord, now as we prepare to look to your word, we ask that you would use that word. Not only to strengthen our conviction, but to transform our lives. That the very way that we live and the way that we think and the way that we speak and the things that we desire might testify to the work within us from you. And the way that you are changing us. And be with us in the week ahead. That in all of our trials we might look to you for help. In all of our triumphs, we might give you the glory. We pray for those who are, are particularly struggling. We think of Larry in the hospital and uh, Linda and Bruce and, and all the rest who are struggling with cancer and recovering from surgeries. We pray that you would provide for them as well. Grant to each one of us the strength that we need and the opportunities to testify to your goodness, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to look together to God's Word, let's stand and sing that second stanza from uh, Psalm 119 that we read. We can find that in our Trinity Psalter Hymnal, Psalm 119, Selection L. Selection L. this evening our sermon text is Lord's Day 32 from our catechism, but first I'd like to read with you from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. We'll talk a little about the background of this in a bit, but what we need to know right up front is that Paul is predominantly talking to a church that has been in bondage, or at least existing under those who would bring them into bondage, telling them that to be a Christian, you need to do, you need to act, you need to perform, you need to put on a show. And he has gone to great lengths to tell them that is not the case, that it is Christ and Christ alone who saves us. But then he points out in this passage that That doesn't mean the way we behave means nothing, has no import. What matters is the motive. What's driving us to the behavior that we show? That it's not pleasing men and it's not trying to earn something, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 16 of Galatians 5, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. Now with that in mind, we come to Lord's Day 32. Now kids, you know there are three sections to our catechism, right? Guilt, grace, gratitude, or sin, salvation, service. And Lord's Day 32 begins the third section, the one that focuses on our gratitude to the Lord or our service. And it asks, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? And the answer is, because Christ having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, and that he may be praised through us, and further, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ." Well, then, can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ Christianity although at root it is quite simple it can be confusing for those who spend much time seeing it without giving it careful thought not speaking exclusively our young people and children, but I think this is a danger for you. You grow up in the church, and what you grow up seeing teaches you that behavior is terribly important. It matters that you speak politely. It matters that you dress modestly. Being present at worship is... Crucial, knowing the right answers, has real value. That's what you've seen, and based solely on that, one might believe that God cares only about appearance. That he cares for what we do more than why we do it. That he cares how things look, perhaps even more than how things are. In other words, what you have seen growing up in the church, if you don't give it careful thought, if you don't put it in theological context, what you have seen growing up in the church could lead you to think that it simply matters that you act like a good little Christian regardless of what you think, what you feel, how you believe. But then, but then, but then you hear from the pulpit and from your catechism teacher something very different you hear the message of Galatians that regardless of how you behave what matters is what Christ has done what matters is what Christ has accomplished what matters is that you have faith in him because that's the only way you're going to be right with God that's the only way you can be reconciled regardless of what you have done And that can be confusing because what you have seen versus what you have heard seem in conflict. And consequently, you are tempted to respond in one of two very different ways. Either you believe what you've seen, focusing on creating a good appearance, focusing on looking good regardless of what you think, or you believe what you've heard and you reject appearances utterly. You resolve that you will put your trust in Christ And not care what people think, which isn't entirely bad. Except when you think that it really doesn't matter how you believe, or how you behave. They're just going to see the real me no matter what. And I'm not going to make any apologies for that. I'm going to be genuine. I'm going to be real. I'm going to put my my behavior and my thoughts out there regardless. Regardless. Either you focus on a holy appearance without regard for where your heart is, or you scorn an appearance of holiness, caring only about the faith within. But you see, that's a false dilemma. Born of confusion over the proper and important role of our works, our behavior. Our forefathers saw the likelihood of that. Which is why they wrote Lord's Day 32. In this section of our catechism, it starts out with that crucial truth. We have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ. Without any merit of our own. And that's absolutely the truth. How we behave, how holy we are or are not, none of that can get us right with God. Salvation is all of Christ, period. But, it does not follow that how you behave means nothing. How you live, the behavior you cultivate does matter because your faith invariably will reveal itself in your life. That's why we have Lord's Day 32, to help us begin to process that. Now, the following Lord's Days are going to really help flesh that out. What's that look like? If our faith is real, how is that going to manifest itself in our lives? How is that going to change the way we live, the way we behave, the way we interact? But it starts out with this crucial truth that Christians embrace Christ by a faith that expresses itself unmistakably. That's our theme. Christians embrace Christ by a faith that expresses itself unmistakably. And the first aspect of that, the positive side, is that faith, true faith, reveals the God-glorifying fruit of the Spirit. That's our first point. Now, Now, to see that, we have this text in Galatians 5. But understand the context there. This whole book, as I alluded to a few minutes ago. This whole book is meant to emphasize that salvation comes entirely of grace. Paul's working hard in this book to counteract the influence of a group called the Judaizers. Judaizers were folks who were within the church. But they were insistent that the only way you can be saved through Christ is if you become a good Jew. You can't be saved, you can't be a true Christian, unless you also are an observant Jew. So they told new Christians, what you need to do is study the law of Moses, especially the ceremonial law. You need to be circumcised, or you can't really be saved. You need to keep the Passover, or you can't really be saved. You need to avoid food that's not kosher, or you can't really be saved. In other words, unless you scrupulously obey the Jewish ceremonial law, you can't be saved. And they argued their point persuasively, not so much with logic, but with pressure. They were the original cancel culture. If you didn't heed them, they would force you out of the church. They would cover you with all kinds of slander. They even managed to get Peter who had had the the vision about how God had called all or had caused all food now to be clean and that God had caused all people to be able to receive him whether Jew or Gentile and they caused even Peter to begin living as an observant Jew again but Paul was having none of it in chapter 2 He says, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know. In other words, I'm a Jew, right? I was born that way, I was raised that way, and yet even so, I know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Through works, through the things that we do, the things that we accomplish, we can't be saved. Even though we're honoring the ceremonial law God gave us, that doesn't matter. Because that law, it was meant to point to Christ. It was meant to instill faith in Christ who was to come. Now that Christ has come, that law is irrelevant because he already fulfilled it all. And so he says in verse 20 of that chapter, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I now live, in the f- I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Christ is the one who fulfilled it all. And now Christ changes everything. You see, when Christ claims us, when we trust him by faith... He frees us. In every man-made religious system, our works, our behavior are essential. You must perform certain religious deeds. You must uphold a specific set of commands. You must attain a particular level of goodness. But Paul points out in this letter that is slavery. Those folks are slaves of the works they think they must do. They are slaves to the fear that they may not have done quite enough. And Christ frees us from that slavery by accomplishing everything that God requires of us. At the start of Galatians 5, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't Be enslaved to those works. Don't be enslaved to that idea that you have to do, accomplish, earn, attain. Jesus did it all. You can't earn anything. And he points out that even your faith, even that which unites us to Christ, even that is a gift from God. Of yourself, you would continue to wallow in the slavery of your sin. It's all you ever knew. Misery was the very air you breathed. So God sent His Holy Spirit to soften your heart, to show you the misery in which you were living, to cause you to desire something better, to enable you to understand the gospel, and even to give you that faith that joined you to Christ. It's all of Him. And if He's given you that faith, then He's in you. And the one who gave you that faith, the one who caused you to understand the gospel, He's not going to stop with that. That's what our text is about. The Spirit who drew you into the life of Christ is also transforming your life. Verse 24. All those who who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That, he says, is what's already true of you. If you trust in Christ, you were crucified on the cross. If you trust in Christ... That sinful part of you, that rebellious part of you, that part that was was standing in opposition to God, he died on the cross. And furthermore, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit is working to do in us. For all who are united to Christ by faith, God is turning our lives upside down. How we were in the corruption of Adam, how we were in the sinfulness in which we were born, was poisonous. It caused us to become a caricature of what God meant us to be. It caused us to make a mockery of the image of God. And so the Holy Spirit began transforming us. Look at verses 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit. What does that fruit do? In sin you were born in hatred, but He begins filling you with love. Love. In sin, you were born in misery, but He begins filling you with joy. In sin, you were born hating others, causing havoc in your relationships, but He gives you peace. In sin, you wanted everything right now, selfishly, but He gives you patience. And so it is. Every one of those fruits of the Spirit is an overturning of some aspect of your sinful nature, replacing it with a nature that reflects God. What he's doing in us. Not immediately, but bit by bit. He's causing us to bring forth this fruit that reveals the character of God. And there's at least four results of that positive work of the fruit of the Spirit, four results that it brings forth in us. The first, as our catechism points out, the first is it enables us to show gratitude. In sin you were miserable and hopeless. Think about it. I mean, look at our world. People are utterly miserable. They're miserable in their work. They're miserable in their relationships. They're miserable in their future. They're miserable in their present. They are utterly miserable. And there's nothing they can do to fix it. Every time they try to fix it, they only make it worse. They only deepen the darkness but Christ frees us he frees us he causes us to become more selfless he causes us to become more loving he imparts into us joy he gives us patience and peace and hope and life he gives us the promise of a future that is more glorious than we can comprehend so when we begin embracing those fruits of the spirit and showing them forth what are we doing we're showing our gratitude Jesus said in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's how we show our thanks. And So as we begin showing that fruit of the Spirit, as we begin following after the ways of the Lord, we're showing Him we're grateful. We're grateful for the change in our lives. We're grateful that we're no longer under that dark shadow. And more than that, we're beginning to worship Him. We were designed and created to worship God as a gathered people, but also in all of life. That's our chief purpose, to glorify and to honor God with all of the gifts, with all of the abilities, with all of the life He's given us. But sin prevented that, didn't it? Sin corrupted us. It corrupted us from within, so that all we wanted was to glorify ourselves rather than glorifying God, so that, so that we would be in the limelight rather than showing the lim- shoving the limelight onto Him. But when Christ saves us, He renews our ability to worship. He begins making us delight to gather with the people of God and to praise Him. But He also causes us to delight in using our gifts, in using our opportunities to bring glory unto God. That's what those fruits of the Spirit are for. Romans 12 says that we're to take all those abilities and we're to use them in order to make ourselves a living sacrifice of praise unto God. That's our spiritual worship. As we take up these fruits of the Spirit, that's what we're doing. We're instilling all of life with worship. And as we learn to worship in all of life, we find a third blessing from this fruit, and that's our assurance. In the sin and the corruption that came natural to us, honoring God was unthinkable. We were too self-centered, we were too rebellious, Only God could change that. Only he could humble us and teach us to think about someone other than us. And when he does that, we begin to notice. We notice that we're desiring things that we never desired before. That we're doing things we never did before. We notice that that we're starting to conquer that anger that used to rise so quickly in us. That we're forgiving people when we used to try to get even. That we're dwelling on things that are good and uplifting rather than on things that are unholy and impure. That we're delighting in things that are honorable rather than those that are dishonorable. And when we begin to notice that, what we're noticing is the work of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 6, Jesus says... A good tree, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. The things that we do, the way we behave, it arises from the heart. And so he says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And so as we begin seeing good things coming out of our mouths, out of our hands, out of our hearts we begin to recognize the Holy Spirit is actually at work within us. We're not deceiving ourselves. We're not putting on a show. We actually are in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And we're not the only ones who will notice. The last thing our catechism shows us in that question, or that answer, is others will notice. When you forgive people and you never bring up their sin again... They notice that. When things all seem to be going wrong and you're able to smile anyway, they notice that. When somebody makes a mistake and you don't say terrible things about them, but you give them another chance or maybe a bit of encouragement, they notice that. And they'll want to know what is what is wrong with you. Why are you so different? Well, it's not that, any, that you've done anything, it's that the Holy Spirit has been at work within you. And so you, because of this, this fruit of the Spirit that He's causing to come forth in you, you gain the opportunity to tell them about Christ. You gain the opportunity to tell them how you were freed from your slavery. You gain the opportunity to tell them about life eternal because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. How glorious that is. Now, to be clear, to be exceptionally clear, none of that fruit earns us anything. Christ earned, Christ attained absolutely everything we need. Whatever fruit we might bear, we produce it by the power of the Holy Spirit, and He Himself is a gift from Christ. And yet that fruit is necessary, it's inseparable from true faith. Because the Spirit who produces that fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, He's the one who gave us the faith that joined us to Jesus. And he never does the one without also doing the other. Christians embrace Christ by a faith that unmistakably expresses itself. And the fruit we bear through the Holy Spirit is that unmistakable expression. But listen, if the Holy Spirit is in you, he will not only be bringing forth good fruit. There's also a negative side to his work which involves putting off something that's bad. And that, too, is inseparable from true faith. And so our second point, our final point, is that true faith rejects the God-denying works of the flesh. See, that new fruit the Holy Spirit produces in us, it's not compatible with how we used to live. Verse 17 from Galatians 5 says, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. The works of the sinful man, the flesh, and the works of the Holy Spirit cannot coexist. Because they come from sources that are radically different. They pursue goals that are entirely incompatible. And therefore, if the Holy Spirit is in you, increasingly you will reject the things that you once embraced. Because the flesh, the old man, was acting... Out of hatred toward God. Look at the works of the flesh described in verse 20. Idolatry. Sorcery. Those are false worship that's rebellious against God. Enmity. Strife. Hatred arising from the heart. Jealousy. Fits of anger attitudes that arise from second-guessing God, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. It's the separating of people that is born of hearts filled with hatred. All of these works of the flesh reveal a deep hatred toward God, a character that is absolutely the opposite of God's character. And so the Holy Spirit begins working in us to show us that that is not okay. That that is not what should characterize us. That that, in fact, is the slavery from which we've been freed. And we begin hating it. We begin wanting to put it off. Moreover, the works of the flesh reveal a deep-seated love of a broken, fallen, sinful world. Look at the works of the flesh described in verse 21. Envy. What is envy? It's a longing... For the things of the world. Drunkenness. An effort to silence one's conscience so that we can embrace the sins of the world. Orgies. Giving oneself over to worldly passions that defile us. Such works are contrary to the self-control to which God calls us. He made us to exercise dominion. He made us to exercise kingly authority over the world, including our own natures. But the sinful, rebellious, enslaved person, he doesn't want to exercise dominion. He wants to go with the flow. He wants to enjoy the pleasures of the moment, regardless of the cost of the future. And the Holy Spirit says, that's not you anymore. That's slavery. Those chains have been broken. They've been cast off. And so more and more, we start to hate the brokenness and the sinfulness of this world. And also... A love for self. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. What is that? Those are works that defile us. Those are works in which we're using other people as disposable commodities and we're allowing ourselves to be used as disposable commodities for the fulfilling of momentary lusts It's hatred for oneself and hatred for the image of God that you were made to bear. And it stands utterly contrary to what we were made for and what Christ saved us for. The Holy Spirit cannot turn a blind eye to that self-love, so He doesn't. He leads us to reject the God-denying works of the flesh. Now, to be clear, he doesn't obliterate our desires for the things of the world and the things of Satan and the things of the flesh all at once. We might wish he did, but he knows us. He knows that we, if, if he just flipped the switch, we wouldn't see the significance of the sudden change. We wouldn't see how deeply enslaved we were to the ways of the world. He wouldn't see, we wouldn't see how ugly we were when we were embracing those sins. And he knows that if those sins, if those inclinations were all removed at once, we might think we did it ourselves. We might think we could rely on ourselves, that we just made a wise decision. So God leads us gently into repentance. We need to remember that. We need to remember that when we get frustrated with ourselves. We need to remember that especially when we get frustrated with the slowness of the repentance of others. Bit by bit, day by day, God starts to make those lusts and passions and sins and depravities that once defined us That once formed the core of our identity, he starts to make that all ugly to us. It was already ugly. But we had corrupted our understanding. We had defiled our heart in such a way that that which was ugly in the sight of God, that was objectively wicked, we started to see as desirable. And so he starts opening our eyes. He starts letting us see. He starts embarrassing us. How could I love that? How could I embrace that? How could I go out in public and advocate for that? It shames us. It makes us hang our heads. But not all at once, lest we be utterly undone. Lest we be utterly beyond ourselves. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh or as he says in 1st John 3 beloved we are God's children now and what we will be is not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is already we are God's children Not yet are we what we shall be. When he shows up, when Jesus returns, we will be just like him. People will look at us and say, you're just like your brother. We're not there yet. But he's transforming us, he's changing us, he's turning us bit by bit. That's the work of the Spirit. Today, perhaps, he's working on that sin of lust that has captured you. That causes you to let your mind wander places it shouldn't wander about people it shouldn't wander with. And maybe tomorrow he'll work on that humbling you on that sin of drunkenness. Or that covetousness toward the things that other people have. Or that hatred that so quickly fills your heart with anger and wrath. Or that, you get the idea, right? All of those selfish, worldly, satanic ideals and sins and desires that you once cultivated and identified yourself with. He's beginning to show you the ugliness and the wickedness and the bitterness of all of them. So that bit by bit you turn away. Again, it doesn't happen overnight and we struggle. Sometimes we think we've gotten that one conquered and then it comes back when our back is turned. But if the Holy Spirit is in you, you will be making progress at repenting. You will be making progress at turning your back or turning away from it. And that's not an excuse to say, well, take your time. No, we take our time because we don't see it all at once. But the irony is the closer we come to Christ, the more the work of the Holy Spirit becomes evident in us, the less we think of ourselves because we see more and more and more of the ugliness and the the sin and the wickedness. And we long for something better. In 1 John 3, that's a promise. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And then he says, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself because He is pure. If we long for that time when when we're able to see Christ, when we're able to have the fullness of His glory before us, if we long to be freed from the slavery that he conquered, then we will begin to purify ourselves even now. We'll be working on repenting of these sins. We'll be asking our friends to hold us accountable for turning away from this and for rejecting that. We'll be praying steadfastly day by day that God will cause the longing for this sin or that to decrease. And we will see progress. Because it's not us who's doing it. It's not our strength we're relying on. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The works of the flesh are evident. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And knowing that, we will shudder with fear and with revulsion. But then we will see that the fruit of the Spirit is is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And we'll notice, we're starting to see that in us. My friends, this is what it comes down to. We're not saved. Young people, please hear this. We are not saved by anything we do. We're saved only and entirely by Christ whom we receive by faith. But if you have the faith that joins you to Christ, you will not stay unchanged. You will begin rejecting those ugly sins that once characterized you. Those ugly rebellions that once defiled the image of God in you. And you will begin revealing that God-glorifying fruit of the Spirit that allows you to show thanks to God, to worship God, to see the work of God within you, and to show others how God is transforming you. So may it be our prayer that those works flourish in us as evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit Himself. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't leave us in the ugliness and the defilement of our sin, but that you love us enough to transform us, to change us, to make the work of the Spirit who gave us faith evident in every part of life. May you make it our delight To bear the fruit of the Spirit. And Lord, may you, by your power, utterly cleanse us of those works of the flesh, that we might no longer continue to embrace that which you hate. And in all of this, may you be glorified through this your people whom you've gathered to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. In response to this uh, this calling, let's stand and sing together hymn number 241 from our Trinity Psalter Hymnal, 241, O God Beyond All Praising. Our offering this evening is for the Pregnancy Resource Center. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for raising up this work in Grand Rapids that provides an alternative for those who are struggling with the news of an impending birth, that they might receive the child that you send as a gift and not an unconquerable burden may the gifts and the counseling that are brought through that center be given all in the name of Christ, that those who are helped receive not only bread for the moment, but with it the bread of life. And may our offerings be used to that end, that your name might be glorified, and that not only may the lives of infants be delivered, but that the souls of their mothers and of generations untold might be led unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our offering song this evening is number two from our Blue Psalter hymnal, a rendering of Psalm 1 and a reminder that we are called to live, well, we have a choice, one of two ways. And we're called to live in the way that acknowledges God. We'll sing all the stanzas of number two.